Good morning, everyone. I'm very thankful to have the opportunity to share this morning. It's a joy to be before you. And I'm very thankful to Alex. Thank you for those songs. It's good to just set our hearts to worship God and quieten our souls before him. And thank you for those people that shared as well. It's always encouraging to hear that God is, is living and active in this world. And uh, I was greatly encouraged. I'm sure others were as well. Shall we just pray as we come to the scriptures? Our Heavenly Father, uh, we've just prayed that you would glorify your name in me. And uh, Lord, that's my prayer now, that you would be honoured uh, through these words. I pray that only your words will come out this morning, your holy truth. And Lord, I pray that I'll be filled with your spirit. Uh, Lord, as we listen in, as we listen in to your eternal truths, uh, Lord, uh, we just pray for clarity of mind, uh, for freedom from distraction, uh, for your spirit to be within us. Uh, Lord, we don't want to take your word lightly, uh, for we know it is significant. We know it is from you, and we know it is inerrant and sufficient. And so, Lord, just help us now uh, to hear it is what it is you have for us to hear. And we pray all these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. As many of you are aware, I am a teacher, a science teacher. As such, when I teach my classes, I have a few simple rules. Things like, you know, don't be too noisy, get work done, don't get your phones out. I was really intrigued when I had the opportunity to go before a panel of experts the other day, experts on teaching, and they shared their views which were contrary to mine. Apparently, I don't need to control the noise level in a classroom because students can work well in different conditions. Apparently, it's up to the student to decide how much work they get done because they'll get it done in their own time. It's their own learning. And... Students have the right, indeed the obligation, to be on their phones because if they don't reply to their friends' Snapchats, they're cultivating rudeness. This panel of experts was my year 10 science class. <laughs> but I thought, what a great picture of our Australian society, of our Aussie culture, where the person in authority has no idea what they're doing and everyone who's under them knows exactly how it should be done. And my classroom is just one example of that. Uh, we see that on the footy field. The umpire makes a decision, but the players argue. And we see that in the newspapers. The person writing the article clearly knows how to run the country better than the government. We see that in the workplace. The boss is doing a job, but everyone under the boss knows they could do a better job. This is part of the culture that we live and breathe every day. Australians just don't have respect for authority. And that's where the Word of God comes in, because we're Christians. And what we're called to do, as we're going to find out this morning, is to submit to authority. And I'm going to contend to you this morning that one of the best ways we can evangelize to the lost is through our submission. One of the best ways we can stand out in society is through our submission to authorities. Because we are called to be kind, but the pagans can also be kind. We're called to be generous, but there are lots of generous pagans too. But when we're called to submit to authorities, as the Bible defines submission, we are going to stand out like sore thumbs, sore thumbs that point to Jesus. And so with that in mind, I'd ask you to open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, and this morning's passage is verses 13 to 25. 
As you turn there, I'll give you some context. Uh, Peter's readers were actually in the region we today call Turkey. They were experiencing some suffering under Roman rule. And Peter has a message for them to submit. And I love the word of God because these people in this culture that Peter was writing to needed to hear about submission. But you look at our culture today, and as Christians, we need to hear about this message as well of submission. And so we read this word of God relevant to us today as it was to the people to whom it was written. In 1 Peter 2, 13 to 25, what we're going to see is three aspects of submission. And each of those aspects is going to build upon the next, forming a a summary sentence. So hopefully you'll be able to follow along. Um, Three aspects of submission that we can learn from today. And without further ado, let's get into it. The first aspect of submission you'll find in verses 13 to 17. And that is, submit to all authority. Submit to all authority. Read with me, please, verses 13 to 17. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone, love the brotherhood of believers, fear God, honour the king. Submit to all authorities. This is made most plain in verse 13. And I find verse 13 very striking. It says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority instituted among men. And it's really interesting uh, for three reasons I find. Firstly, it says submit for the Lord's sake for the Lord's sake. So that means when we're submitting to people on earth, we're doing it for the sake of the Lord. We're doing it to bring glory to God. God calls us to submit to people on earth so that we can bring him honour. It's for his sake. And that has some serious implications, that we're to submit to these people as if we're submitting to God. We're to place ourselves under the authority of these people as if we're placing ourselves under the authority of God. And the flip side is also true. When we show a lack of submission and dishonour to authorities, that is dishonouring to God himself. Submit for the Lord's sake. Also striking verse 13, submit to every authority. Every authority. And this is really striking because there's not a lot of ways to get around that word every. I don't need to translate it for you. If there's someone in authority, as Christians, we're called to submit to them. We don't get to pick and choose which people we submit to. And the third striking thing is the word human, or my translation among men. Some of you will have the the phrase human. And this is particularly grating. If you're anything like me and you've lived in this culture, humans, they don't do a very good job sometimes. (laughs) They stuff up, they make mistakes, they're inefficient. You know, as a believer, the idea of submitting to God is pretty pleasant, really, because God is perfect and God is love and God is merciful. And humans are not. Yet, we are called to submit to the authorities among men, the human authorities. And that's here in the scriptures, it's for the Lord's sake, and it's to every one of them. And so we read these words, and there's applications for us. We need to examine our lives. How are we going in this area of submitting to all authorities? 
How are we going in the area of respecting our boss in the workplace? How are we going in the area of respecting the elders in the church? How are we going in the area of speaking well of those in authority above us? We need to make sure that we're submissive to all authorities. And this is for the sake of the Lord. It's worthwhile me mentioning an exception that does exist, not mentioned here in this passage, but in the Scriptures. I'll draw your minds back to Daniel chapter 6. In that chapter, the king made prayer a crime, but Daniel chose to submit to God's authority above the authority of the land, because God's authority does trump human authority if the human authority is running counter to what God has to say. So in Daniel chapter 6, when prayer was outlawed, Daniel submitted to God instead of man. You'll see a similar thing in Acts chapter 5. Peter himself uh, was told, don't preach in the name of Jesus. So what does Peter do? He preaches in the name of Jesus and says we are to obey God, not man. The reason being that God's authority trumps man's authority when they're being rebellious to him. I mention that example because it is important, but please, when you're considering disobeying authority, make sure you're doing it for the right reason. If they're saying prayer or preaching is banned, by all means, honour God through not following that authority. But if they just do something differently to how you would see it done, if they just disagree with you in a few points, if they're just being inefficient, you still have to submit to them. Only if it runs counter to the very core of God are we called to not respond to the authorities in that way. So that's the exception that we bear in mind. We read on in verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority. Now that does beg the question, who was the king at the time of writing? And the interesting answer to that is it was Nero. Now if you know anything about Nero, you'll know that he was a wicked guy. He did not like Christians at all. Indeed, he was persecuting Christians at this time. And about the time Peter was written, about two years later, you're actually going to have the Great Fire of Rome, where Rome is basically burnt to the ground. And what the Great Fire of Rome did is it made all the Roman citizens really angry towards Nero. His popularity plummeted, and he actually got accused of burning Rome to the ground. So to save his own skin, what Nero did was blame the Christians. He held them responsible for the fire and accused them of crimes against humanity. And so the Christians became persecuted like never before. The Christians were coated in animal skins, and wild beasts were let loose on them. Christians were nailed to crucifixes along public streets. Christians were put on poles in Nero's own backyard, covered in flammable liquid, and set alight. This is the suffering that's just around the corner for these believers, and they're already suffering as it is. This is the authority that God is saying, submit to. And I find that extremely convicting today. I find that I can say really negative things and disrespectful things about our Prime Minister, and yet here is God saying, submit to the highest human authority, the king, and the king in this case is Nero. It's an extremely convicting thing to do. And what I urge you to do is what Jeff does, is pray for our authorities. Because as you pray for the authorities, it'll help you cultivate that respect that's called for here. But if these believers here are called to respect Nero, let us respect the authorities we have in this land. Verse 13 goes on to say, 
uh, sorry, verse 14, or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. And so we're just extrapolating that idea of submit to all authorities. Yes, we submit to God, it's for his sake, he's the ultimate authority, but we submit to the king or the emperor, and we also submit to the governors. So you're getting the idea that if there's anyone above you in these human institutions, we submit to them. That's the biblical example showed to us. And in our life, a governor is going to include anyone elected to parliament, anyone that makes those decisions in government um, that runs our country. And no, we're not going to agree with all of them. And yes, some of them are run counter to God's instructions, but we are called to be submissive and show respect to these authorities. And what's also interesting, and I think worthwhile mentioning, is the role of the governors mentioned here in verse 14. They're sent to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. And I think too often here in Australia, we complain about all the negatives, but we're not thankful enough for the positives. The mere fact that you're here in a church this morning and I can preach to you freely is a massive plus for this country. There are so many believers in other countries that don't have the freedoms from their government to do that. And so we really should consider spending more time being thankful for the good laws that we do have. At least murder is still a crime. Theft is still a crime. We have lots of good laws and the governors, to an extent, are doing a good job. And so we are called to be thankful to God for this as well as to the authorities themselves. We get to verse 15. I'll read it out for you. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. And this is one of the key verses in this passage, if you will. Indeed, one of the key verses in Peter that our conduct, our doing good, is to be our evangelistic tool. The way we act is to be so different to the rest of the world that they're just going to be silent before us. They're going to be gobsmacked at the godliness on display, at the submission on display. And I liken this verse to a word, um, we are to be unaccusable. And I did make that word up, but I think I'm allowed to do that. I just did it anyway. Unaccusable. We are, we are to be unaccusable. You know, Jared there, he's meant to live such a good, godly, submissive life that if I were to say, hey, Jared is, is a really bad guy, you could all look at his life and say, actually, he's really godly. Jordan, you can't accuse him. He's unaccusable. That's the kind of standard we're called to. The theme is repeated uh, just a few verses before. Verse 12 of the same chapter, read with me. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Just going back to those Christians I mentioned before that were persecuted under the reign of Nero, what happened over time was that people, everyday Romans, could see that these Christians were innocent. They could see that Nero was wicked in putting these people to death. They could see that the punishments didn't fit the crime and that these people indeed hadn't committed any crime. The lives of the Christians pointed to God in their submission and in the fact they were unaccusable. We had to live such lives as well. We go to verse 16. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. And this is a really interesting verse because Christian freedom can be a contentious topic. Christian freedom can be one of those things that we rejoice in and like to show, I'm free to do this, I'm free to do that. But we need to make sure we're not using our freedom as a cover for evil. So we're free to 
make recommendations to our boss, but we can't do so in a disrespectful way. We can't use that as an excuse for sin. We're free to discuss our politicians, but we can't do so in a way that brings them no honour and doesn't show submission. We're free to do all sorts of things, but we need to make sure that our freedom is not an excuse for sin. That we're not just saying, oh, I'm free in Christ, and then going out and sinning. That's not how it works. Peter's going to say in his next epistle, uh, chapter 2.19, that there are people who are slaves to depravity, and they're the ones that are promoting evil. People in our culture, they want to be free, but if they really want to be free, they have to be in Christ. Did you notice that in verse 16, in the same verse that Peter says, live as free men, he also says, live as servants of God? Live as free men but live as servants of God. And that's how it works. Our freedom is a freedom from sin. We are no longer slaves to depravity, but our freedom means we are slaves to God. We're servants of God. And they're the only two camps. You're either a slave to sin, or if you're born again, you're a slave to Christ. And we need to make sure that we view our Christian freedom in that way. The next time you feel like mentioning your Christian freedom, Just consider that you are a servant of Jesus and see if your freedom lines up with a conduct befitting a slave of Christ. Verse 17, Peter's going to give some rapid-fire commands that kind of wrap up this section. Show proper respect to everyone. Everyone is made in the image of God and thus has some inherent worth and is worthy of our respect. Even that annoying person you're thinking of now, is worthy of respect, because they're made in the image of God. Love the brotherhood of believers. As Christians, we have this special bond with believers. I certainly feel it when I gather with you guys. It's a a real closeness of people who were redeemed into the kingdom. You're my brothers and sisters in Christ. There's to be a real love there. Fear God. Fear God. Consider his mercy and, and weep. Consider his power and tremble. Take time to consider him and honour the king. Now, if I was writing this and and giving some wrap-up commands, I wouldn't have included that one. I wouldn't have thought it's quite as important as the others. But you're getting a glimpse here into the need for submission as part of the Christian conduct. Honour the king. And so we conclude that first aspect of submission. Submit to all authorities. We get to the next section, which is in verses 18 to 20. And Peter's going to add to his statement. Submit to all authorities, even under hardship. Read with me, please, verses 18 to 20. Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. Submit to all authorities, even under hardship. Now this section is addressed to slaves from verses 18 to 20. So I'll give you a little bit of information about slaves. Basically, at the time of writing, the Roman Empire is very big, it's very vast, covers the whole Mediterranean, it even extends into Britain. And every time the Romans would win a war, the prisoners of war would become slaves. So at the time of writing, 
there's as many as 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire, which is the population of Australia and New Zealand doubled, just in slaves. So there are a lot of slaves in the Roman Empire. They're a key part of society. But what's happening at this time, about 30 years after the ascension of Christ, is this message of the gospel is just sweeping through the culture. And the message of the gospel has some very interesting connotations. Things like, in Christ, there's no slave or master. Everybody needs a saviour. And nobody is righteous, regardless of their status. And so there's this radical, sweeping Christianity concept going all through the kingdom. And, and the kingdom is perpetuated with Christians. They're everywhere, even they're the suffering. This is a region in Turkey, and yet there's Christians here. And we have this, this contention, if you will. We have all these slaves, so many of them, but we have this, this Christian message coming, and so we've got to ask, what's Peter's concern here? What does Peter really want here as this message of the gospel spreads? And what Peter wants is for God to be glorified. What Peter wants more than anything is for the slaves to behave in such a way that they point to Jesus accurately. Glorifying God is more important than social justice. And you read verse 19. Submit yourselves to masters with all respect, okay, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. Now that, this morning, may strike you as odd. And if it does, I think that's half the point. Because such behaviour is indeed odd. You wouldn't get this kind of message anywhere else. It's not the message that normal culture spreads. It's a radically different message of submission from God himself. Because if we have a slave who is enduring harsh treatment, who's being beaten for no reason, and yet he responds with joy and thankfulness, he doesn't grumble, he continues to work hard, he says, I'm a free man in Christ, but I continue to serve you, that kind of radical submission would point to Jesus very clearly. And what it would do is it would cause other people and the master to say, what do you have? What is this Christ that you have that you can behave in such a way even though you were receiving unjust treatment? And so the glory of God is shown to be more important than human rights. These slaves, through their conduct, even under hardship, can point to Jesus. It's a difficult one for us to grasp sometimes because hardship is real and hardship is not easy. And when you receive hardship, especially unjust hardship, it's very natural to want to, to do something. But what we notice is what's instructed here is a few simple things. Verse 19, you'll notice towards the end, it says that these slaves are to be conscious of God or be mindful of God. And that's a really important one. If you are going to bear up under the pain of unjust suffering and still submit, you will not be able to do it unless you're mindful of God, unless you're considering God. And so I urge you, when you go to work, that's not just your secular life. Go to work mindful of God. If you can, as soon as you get there, pray. Pray when you're about to leave. Try and set aside some time to think about God on your lunch break. Try and pepper times where you can consider God at your workplace because that's one of the places where you can show off God the best through your radical submission even under hardship. You'll also notice uh, at the end of verse 20 that this happens in the sight of God. 
This happens and God sees it. And that's the other important thing to consider. You're not going to be able to bear up under unjust suffering if you don't recognise that God is actually watching and God cares. And so it's very important that you keep your eyes fixed on God and remember that he has his eyes fixed firmly on you. In doing this, we point other people to Jesus. The glorification of God is more important than our own individual rights. And even if our heart is screaming out for justice, the question we really should be asking ourselves is, how can I use this situation to point others to Jesus? How can I respond to this unfair assessment and show Christ? How can I deal with this unfair amount of work and show that I love Jesus Christ? And that's to be the attitude that we are to show in our workplaces. And it's the attitude Peter is calling these slaves to show in their places of slavery. We have a uh, very obvious statement in verse 20 as well. Basically, verse 20 is saying, if you're doing the wrong thing and then you receive unjust treatment, that's no good to anybody. If you're at work and you're grumbling and you're slacking off and you're gossiping and then the boss is unreasonable towards you, you're not going to stand out for Jesus and you're not going to point other people to him. You're not going to glorify God. Only if you are being hardworking and diligent and joyful and thankful and refusing to, to gossip and slander and then the unjust treatment comes and the unfair amount of work comes and you keep doing those things all the more, that's what's going to point to Jesus. We want to be those that, if we do have unjust suffering, can say, it is unjust because I've been blameless before God. Submit to all authorities, even under hardship. This takes us to the last section, verses 21 to 25. Submit to all authorities, even under hardship, just as Christ suffered. Submit to all authorities, even under hardship, just as Christ suffered. And we're going to spend these last few verses looking at the person of Christ. What a wonderful way to finish off. Read with me, please, verses 21 to 25. For to this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Submit to all authority, even under hardship, just as Christ suffered. And we have that basically in verse 21, straight up. To this you were called. What were you called to? You were called to suffer. That's what the previous verses were all talking about. And I don't know how often you consider your calling before God, but your calling does involve some suffering for him, suffering for the cause of the kingdom. You've been called to that. Verse 21 goes on to say, because Christ suffered for you. I don't want you to be the Christian that says, dear Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for my sins, but I'm completely unwilling to bear any pain for your sake. May that never be descriptive of any one of us. Christ suffered for you. And he leaves you an example. 
And so here's the example we are to follow. I was reading that the Greek word, for example, was often used in the context of tracing paper, where you have an original manuscript, and so you put the other paper over the top, and you trace what was there. It's an exact copy. Our lives are called to be exact copies of Jesus, to be traces of Jesus, not just contain traces of Jesus. And we also see that we are to follow in his steps. And we all know where Jesus' steps led. They led to suffering, to a crown of thorns, to a back that was whipped, to bearing his own cross on the road to Golgotha, and then he hung there and died for our sins. Those are the steps of Jesus. And those are the steps that we are called to follow, to be willing to suffer just as Jesus did. We get a great glimpse of the character of Jesus in verse 22. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. This is a quotation from Isaiah 53, a great passage that speaks of the suffering servant. And what we know about the suffering servant is that he was innocent, and yet he died for the sins of others. And Peter here is reaffirming that that suffering servant is Jesus. And verse 22 shows clearly that Jesus was innocent. He never sinned once. No evil thoughts, no evil deeds. He was completely sinless. No other human is sinless. No other human ever will be sinless. None of us are sinless. I am not sinless. Uh, But Jesus was sinless. Jesus had no sin at all. And yet, how did Jesus, this perfect man, live? Verse 23. When they hurled their insults at him, He did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Jesus, we've just established, was innocent. So that means Jesus is within his rights to say, hey, your accusations are false. These insults are not correct. I am perfectly blameless here. We can all agree that Jesus would have been within his rights to answer back his accusers and his persecutors By saying, I'm innocent, stop. There would be nothing morally wrong with such a situation because Jesus was innocent. And yet, look at the example. He did not retaliate. He made no threats in return. I think a failure to grasp Jesus is the main reason why we are so quick to condemn, are so quick to fight for our rights, so quick to, to seek justice in our own way, in our own sphere. When people put us down, we're very quick to say, hey, 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 that, that's not right. But look at Jesus. None of us were as good as Jesus. None of us face as much suffering as Jesus. And yet all of us are guilty of trying to fight for our own rights and establish our own sense of justice more than Jesus. Yet we're called to submit and we're called to suffer. You'll see, end of verse 23, how Jesus was able to do it. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And if there's one thing we need to have characterizing our lives, it's it's entrusting ourselves to him who judges justly. We need to remember that God is going to judge the earth. When we're at work and we're just getting an unfair amount of work, we don't have to take matters into our own hands because God is going to judge all the wickedness in due course. Jesus is going to come again and set up his kingdom and he's going to reign and there's going to be perfect peace. This is a reality. This is going to happen. 
God is going to judge justly. And what that does is that affects the way we live. Yes, there's injustice in the world. Yes, there's injustice in our lives towards us. But God is going to judge justly, and so we entrust ourselves to him, just as Jesus did. Try reading the Psalms. You'll read all manner of horrible things that were happening to the psalmists. But what do they do? They consider the character of God and remind themselves that he has everything in control and he is the perfect judge. He's the one who will deliver them. What do you think was going through David's head when David was in the cave with King Saul? God had delivered this king into David's hand. Saul was persecuting David even though David had done nothing wrong. And now David stands over him with a sword in his hand, able to kill this king and end his sorrow. But what does he do? He does nothing, as it were. He entrusts himself to him who judges justly. And Jesus does the same thing when he submits to those who are accusing him, beating him and killing him. He remembers the justice of God. Too often we look at this life, we look at this blip, and there's injustice. And there is injustice. We don't deny that as Christians. We acknowledge that. But when you look at what God is going to do, we see perfect justice. And that sustains us. God is in control. We don't need to be. Verse 24. Verse 24 is probably my favorite New Testament gospel verse. It's amazing. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. There are so many things we can consider with this verse. We'll just consider a few of them. First, we'll just consider, I think, the obvious response as a Christian reading these verses. It's gratitude. How can you not be thankful reading those verses? We are here this morning, children of the living God, because of this act of Jesus. Because Jesus bore our sins, we're able to be redeemed. And we praise his name as we have done this morning. Jesus bore the ultimate injustice so that we could get what we didn't deserve. As Christians, this is the gospel right here in verse 24. This is what we delight in. This is what gives us great joy. And so we're thankful. We're so thankful for what Jesus has done. But hopefully you also noticed the absolute, undeniable, unfairness of the situation. We've established that Jesus was perfect. Not only did he not respond or retaliate to his accusers and die, but he bears the sin of the whole world as well. This is absolutely the most unfair situation you could possibly envisage. The most perfect person choosing to die and bear the sin of every single person. This is the definition of unfair. And yet it's a beautiful picture of what God can do. It's a beautiful picture of God's sovereignty. It's a beautiful picture of God's love. And we rejoice in this. And we have to remember that God can work a situation as unfair as this to bring such a wonderful goal. He's going to be working in our lives as well, even through that suffering that we're called to endure. The end of the verse as well is beautiful. By his wounds... You have been healed. This would have been wonderful words to the the Christians who are suffering. Hopefully they're wonderful words to you this morning as you suffer. But no matter how much you suffer, whether that suffering is physical or emotional or psychological or a combination of all of them, if you're a Christian, 
You are healed by his wounds. And that's a wonderful truth. There's a real security there because you are healed. It's been done. Your soul before God cannot be accused because the price has been paid. Verse 25 is going to go on. You are healed and you're secure. The shepherd and overseer of your souls. Jesus has watch over your soul. You don't have to worry about your future because your soul is secure and you get to be in the presence of God when he ushers in his new kingdom or when you pass away. Jesus has complete control of your soul. He's the good shepherd. He's the good overseer of your soul. You are healed. And so as we consider the reality of our salvation and the reality of our future with God himself, it encourages us to endure unjust suffering and submit in our lives today. Again, you may have noticed uh, some references to Isaiah 53 again. By his wounds you have been healed. That's a reference to Isaiah 53. You were like sheep going astray. That's a reference to Isaiah 53. The suffering servant is our example. He's the one whose steps we are to follow in. That brings me to a conclusion here this morning. I want to thank you for listening in. And I hope the Spirit of God has made clear that we are called to submit to all authorities, even under hardship, just as Christ suffered. And I pray that you find application in your life, that you see things that you can put off and things that you can put on to make yourself more submissive, to make yourself a better glorifier of God and better able to point to Jesus. So I urge you, if in your workplace you're partaking in gossip or grumbling or complaining, putting your boss down, put that off. Instead, rejoice, be diligent, work hard, show reverence and respect, be submissive. We're called to be radically different in the way we do that. And if you're suffering here this morning, know that God sees. He's the one who has control of your soul, but he also sees your suffering. So it's not in vain. And what it's doing is it's glorifying God and pointing others to Jesus. And all of us, as we go about our daily lives, are going before people that need to see Christ. And if they're going to see Christ, they must see something different. And I urge you this morning, one of the best ways we can be different in today's society is through our submission to authorities. Then we, like these slaves, like these general people, will be showing off Christ and glorifying God. And that's my prayer for all of us here this morning. Well, thank you for listening. Am I closing things off, Alex? All right. Well, shall we stand for a benediction? I'll read a benediction uh, from the book of Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Saviour be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen.